Hello and welcome to this podcast of Neonatal Conversations. This podcast has been created to improve understanding for neonatal and paediatric trainees, nursing and medical colleagues and anyone who is interested in becoming more familiar with our boutique area of medicine. My name is Kath Carmo and I am a neonatal intensive care specialist in Sydney, Australia. My practice is in the Grace Centre for Newborn Intensive Care and in Neonatal Retrieval as the Deputy Director of NETS New South Wales. My research focus has been in neonatal ultrasound in retrieval, where we take point-of-care ultrasound on the run to assess critically ill newborns, specifically focusing on the baby with significant oxygen requirements. So joining me in this neonatal conversation today is Nadine Griffiths. Nadine is the neonatal clinical nurse consultant in the Grace Centre for Newborn Intensive Care. She has experience in the field of paediatric and neonatal critical care, having worked in Australia and in the United Kingdom. Nadine is passionate about neurodevelopmental care and its application in the NICU. She is an advocate of infant and family-centred care, and she is integral in our unit in leading our surgical neurodevelopmental round. In 2017, Nadine was endorsed as the first NIDCAP trainer in Australia. Nadine is currently working towards her PhD, looking at the impact of the caregiving we do in the nursery. Does it help or hinder? So it is my pleasure in this International Year of the Nurse to welcome Nadine. Thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege to be here and as the first nurse interviewed as part of Neonatal Conversations. Great. So Nadine, to start the conversation, can we first hear a little bit more about you? How did you come to nursing? And then how did you land in the neonatal area? What inspired you? I actually always wanted to be a nurse and I was dissuaded from it by my family. They thought I would be too, it would be too emotional for me and I would find it too taxing. And so I, when I got to the end of high school, I actually did go into nursing, but not probably via a traditional way. I didn't do too well in my high school certificate. I wasn't quite that good at applying myself at that point. And so I actually did enrolled nursing. I worked in a nursing home then I did enrolled nursing. Worked almost full time while I did my bachelor's degree. Went into paediatric critical care not long after I left the um, university setting. And then I came to NICU because I had actually burnt out a bit in paediatric critical care, particularly PICU and ED. And Kay Spence, who is a well-known neonatal nurse, was my mentor at the time. A nurse educator position came up and that's how I got here. But what inspired me was in the 1990s, there was a promotional, um, I guess, drive to get nurses into their profession. And it was called Nurses You Can't Live Without Them. And there was bumper stickers everywhere. And on that ad, there was a nurse in a neonatal intensive care unit. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to do that. And then here I am. Right. Well, we're certainly glad all that happened. It sounds like it was a little bit of a long road to get there, but um, we're certainly very grateful that you're in the neonatal nursery now. So Nadine, in neonatology, we know that everything we do as clinicians and also as parents of babies, everything that we do can have exponential effects throughout the lifespan. And so today I would like to discuss with you how we can ensure that we are when we, especially when we are retrieving critically ill newborns and also caring for them in the NICU, that we are applying our best efforts to ensure that the child grows up with resilience and with the best opportunities for a normal childhood. I often say at NETS, our job is to get childhoods back on track. And I'm sure there are aspects where we can improve. So to start with today, 
Can you please talk a little bit about NIDCAP? What does the acronym stand for? And how did it come about as a strategy of care in the NICU? So NIDCAP st stands for Newborn Individualised Developmental Care Assessment Program. It originated in Boston in the early 1980s and it really evolved from the early intervention research by Dr. Heidelise Alves, who's an infant and child neurobehavioural psychologist, along with colleagues, including nurse researchers. They did work looking at the theoretical understanding of infant behaviour and its practical translation into the neonatal unit. So NIDCAP is really focused on understanding infant behaviour responses and integrating these into everyday care. There is a big emphasis on building and protecting emerging relationships within an environment that is family-centred, calm and humane. And recently one of my colleagues, Dr Gretchen Lawhorn, described NIDCAP as a strategy focused on protecting the developing brain where the infant is an active participant in care and guides the caregiving intervention. For us, infant behaviour is the baby's means of communication and NIDCAP facilitates an understanding of that communication. It helps us to identify signals of what the baby is telling us and it gives us clues of how we can adjust our care based on the infant's conversation with us between the baby and the caregiver. In terms of its practical ap application, NIDCAP is a systematic observation tool where a trained observer watches a baby pre, during and post caregiving to establish the baby's baseline behaviour, their responses to caregiving and how long it takes them to recover after caregiving. We look for signs of stress or self-regulation and use this detailed information to develop individualised recommendations for the baby by learning from them what worked and what didn't based on the baby's emerging competence and self-regulation. NIDCAP-focused clinicians and teams explore how relationships between infants and parents, infants and staff, families and staff, the NICU unit and the broader hospital or community all interact. We try and work out how these systems work with each other and what we can do to ensure they are family and neurodevelopmentally focused. But I think, in all honesty, one of those most important parts is that NIDCAP identifies parents as primary caregivers. We are their support crew and I describe it almost like an F1 race. They're out on the track driving the car, we are in the pits driving the machines. And they, we help them manage the equipment, however this remains their baby we're involving and recognising parents as active participants and by doing this in caregiving from the minute they step into a NICU it helps ensure they're part of the journey, they understand their baby's evolving behaviour responses and that parents then develop confidence and competence within and beyond the NICU particularly after discharge home which we know can be a challenge and parents are really the ultimate buffer against the effects of the NICU, they are the best intervention we can offer to support the baby's long-term development. Hmm. So I, I get now why you wear um, high-vis gear and uh, almost, do you, you don't wear hard hats, do you? No, but we could. In, in the nursery when you're doing the NIDCAP round, um, that makes sense. Um, so I suppose in the retrieval world, we work really hard on the ABC of the ABCDE algorithm of resuscitation. And of course, um, in a critical care environment, we usually say D is for drugs, but you'd like us to think more about D for developmental care, wouldn't you? What can you tell us about that? And what is it about the first 1,000 days of postnatal life that you think we should all know about? I think it's really important to highlight that both in the world of retrieval and the neonatal unit, safety comes first. So airway, breathing and circulation always come before developmental care. We'd never encourage a nest to be in situ for a resuscitation if it's going to impede safety. But what we are saying is developmental care should be considered a priority. And really the literature that's come out internationally supports that. The first 1,000 days was a UNICEF um, 
I guess, intervention, and it's been adopted across Australia in New South Wales. It's called the first 2,000 days. It's from conception to either two years of age or until you get to school age, and it's about supporting positive interactions because during this period, it's seen as the brain's window of opportunity, and everything that happens from conception to this point really sets you up for your life in terms of your health and your social outcomes. And what we talk about, particularly when we're talking about neurodevelopmental care, is that everything that happens in this period has an effect. It can be positive, negative or cumulative. Hmm. So we know that a neonatal retrieval <coughs> excuse me, is a big event in a parent's life. Um, but what can you tell us about how it might affect the baby's life and how would you categorise that? I think for babies who are retrieved, there's underlying risks that they bring with them to that environment. So their gestational age, whatever their underlying condition is and this is compounded by the transport environment which is an environment that is noisy there's whole body vibrations there's accelerative and deceler I can't even say that deceleration forces and variable thermal environment and what we are increasingly focused on is the environment of caregiving as a concept of medical trauma so what they're talking about theoretically around the world is that there's stresses such as parental mental illness, exposure to alcohol and drugs, abuse and neglect, or medical trauma, and these are all considered unique sources of potential childhood traumatic stress. And there's scientific evidence that there's lifelong health problems following early life adversity with adverse childhood experiences. They're also called ACEs, resulting in poor mental and physical health in adulthood. An admission to a neonatal intensive care unit or a paediatric intensive care unit is being framed as an adverse childhood event, something we should consider as an immediate and ongoing stressor. Hmm. So I guess you've described some of that, but whilst we're trying to do the right thing for the baby's physiology and retrieval, what you're saying is we're also introducing stressors. So what can you tell us about that and how might we address them? When we think about stress from a developmental perspective, there's really three components of stress, positive, tolerable and toxic stress. But what we do know is stress is necessary for development. So positive stress occurs as part of your normal developmental trajectory. For example, as a baby learns a new skill like trying to roll, and it's considered mild stress in the context of support or buffering from their parents. The parents encourages them, they help them, they reward them. And so this sort of stress, positive stress, is seen as supporting the development of resilience and coping skills. The next level of stress is called tolerable stress. And this is considered a serious temporary increase in stress. And again, it's buffered by supportive relationships. And you can see the parents are so important here. And a third classification of stress is toxic stress. And toxic stress is prolonged activation of the stress response system without protection. So this is activation of your neuroendocrine responses and this type of stress is likely to be experienced in the neonatal unit. And within the NICU, what we know causes this stress is environmental stresses from noise and light, physical separation from their mothers in particular. This can result in increased autonomic activity, so heart rate, respiratory rate variability, and reduced sleep. And we know that painful and unpredictable life-saving medical procedures also contribute to this. There's research in animal models that suggests that exposure to recurrent stresses after seven days results in toxic stress. So what we could consider is that for babies admitted to a neonatal unit greater than seven days, they are likely to be experiencing some form of toxic stress. And there's more and more research exploring the adverse um, childhood events or ACEs, and these components is being undertaken by some great nurse researchers, including Amy Diagetar. Hmm. So I guess we can translate most of that into the 
retrieval environment as well. And part of our um, successes in retrieval has been the survival of preterm babies. So outborn babies are now almost equal to inborn babies in their survival. And that's improved over the past decades. But what do we know about their developmental outcomes? Are we improving the lives of our preterm babies? Absolutely. I don't think we can understate how far medical advances have come. Think about surfactant, which has really only been around for almost 40 years now. We have magnesium sulfate that we use more readily. We know there's advances in neonatal care and these have definitely, definitively improved the survival of preterm and critically ill infants. And whilst the rates of some long-term neurodevelopmental problems in NICU graduates, such as the incidence of cerebral palsy, have reduced, we know that in other areas the neurodevelopmental problems persist, and that's particularly relevant for areas such as learning and behavioural difficulties. Hmm. So what about, what about other life factors? Do, do our babies um, that we've retrieved or looked after in the NICU go on to lead happy and productive lives? Absolutely, yes. All the research tells us that largely they do. There is some great work that helps us frame this. There's large cohort studies from Europe, EpiPage and EpiCure, and in Australia there's work from Victoria and Jenny Cheung's group. And we have a clear understanding of what the longer term outcomes are for preterm infants, not only when they get to school age, but when they become adults as well. And that's where there is a larger focus of research now is preterm infants as adults. And increasingly they talk about reassuring and worrying components and what we were previously worried about may not be what we're worried about moving into the future. Reassuringly they say attention deficit problems reduce with age, particularly by the age you get to about 11. There is little evidence for depressive disorders, however there is more and more research focusing on this specific realm. And despite early experiences, their relationships with parents are incredibly good and they are really unlikely to commit a crime, which is reassuring. What is worrying is that their cognitive function shows little change on average from childhood to adulthood and your IQ can be predicted from when you're a toddler. Worryingly, there's more often, they are more often socially withdrawn and have poorer social relationships with their peers. They're less likely to have a partner and they have poorer health and wealth in adulthood and they're less independent. Interestingly, research that looked at parents of NICU graduates with significant adverse outcomes. So these are children who had ongoing health requirements and needed support in the community. These parents weren't worried about the ongoing need for care. They were worried about the fact they didn't have friends. And one of the other areas they're talking about is that these families report and these children as adults report a poorer quality of life related to economic and social functioning. So they're not so much worried about disability. They're worried about how they find a place in society and who are their friends. And what the researchers are saying to us is that very preterm children develop adaptively without major problems. I guess what we're struggling really to overcome is the effect of prematurity for infants born at less than 29 weeks gestation. And increasingly, as we get bigger cohorts over longer periods of time, contrary to expectations, the rates of major neurosensory disability are not improving. And academic performance is poorer at school age now than it was in earlier eras, eras for extremely preterm children. Hmm. So, I guess trying to put that all together is it over? Is it overall hopeful, mm. or is it overall worrying? Are we doing the right thing by um, in, improving the survival rates of these extremely preterm children? I think it should be absolutely overall reassuring. You are more likely to survive admission to a NICU. You are much more likely to have 
severe deficits, we just cannot replicate the interuterine environment. No matter what else we seem to do, we cannot seem to overcome that component. And they talk about it being forever premature. So there is some cohorts that come from the NICU who this will affect them for their whole life. Mm, so my trainees will um, appreciate this when I say, you know, you're, you're never an ex-26-weeker. You were born at 26 weeks and that affects you throughout your life. Absolutely. And we can't absolutely correct for it. Um, so I guess there's lots we can learn and lots lots we need to sort of further investigate. And what about the late preterm infant compared with the term baby who is unwell in the NICU or the surgical neonate? I mean, these babies are those that we commonly transport. How are they faring? I think we have increasingly become aware of how important it is to monitor late preterm infants beyond um, the NICU and into their school age. We know that they perform worse in cognitive language and motor domains, particularly with language at 18 months of age. They have poor, so, poorer social emotional competence, higher levels of behavioural problems and have significantly worse total school readiness. And this is reflected in reading, maths and expressive language scores. What is interesting is in countries like Canada, where they have recognised this as an issue, they are advocating that for infants less than 37 weeks gestation, they're held back for a year. So they don't go to school at the same age as everyone else. They're held back from a year. And during that year, intensive work is done about getting them school ready. So there is a group in Canada who is advocating for this. So we know we're worried about the late preterm infants. In terms of surgical neonates, their outcomes really parallel preterm infants. We know that there's a significant increased risk of gross motor delay at one and three years of age. Cognitive delay is also reported. It ranges from three to 56%, with an average of about 23%. And we know that congenital heart disease is associated with developmental delays, learning disabilities, and behavioral problems. And the comparison between babies with congenital heart disease and preterm infancies is increasingly they're both being described with a behavioural phenotype. So they have these clusters of behaviours that are unique to ex-preterm infants or babies who were born prematurely and babies who have a congenital heart defect. Hmm. So I guess it's a, it's a big area of our practice that we need to improve on now that we've got such good survival rates in, the, in, the, in retrieval and in the NICU. Um, so I think I get the size of the problem at follow-up. What do you think the specific problems are for our transport environment and what can we do to improve our developmental care during the stabilisation and transport of these vulnerable newborns? I think as a non-retrieval expert, I can approach it from a developmental care perspective, but transport is a really dynamic environment. You're faced with noise, vibration, handling, temperature and effects on ventilation and monitoring. So if we were to break it down into the areas we think of developmentally, we'd really think about noise. The American Academy of Pediatric recommends noise levels in a NICU are less than 45 decibels, but we know during transport infants are exposed to excessive noise with ground ambulance transfers about 70 decibels and air transport 80 decibels. And whilst there's commercially available ear protectors, they only reduce the sound by up to 7 decibels. In terms of the whole body vibration, this often exceeds the recommended safe level for adults. And given that we're worried, particularly in some of their smaller gestational babies, about their head and IVH, that appears to be an area for risk for them. So for noise and body, whole body vibration, developing a neonatal transport bed that minimises the effect of noise and vibration during transport would be really useful. There was a recent study from the USA that talked about neonatal retrieval and they found that 30% of these babies had clinical deterioration during transport. 
they talked about what some of the confounding factors were for this and that was associated with prematurity, delivery room resuscitation, birth defects, the type of transport and the request for the team to go into the delivery room to provide assistance. And what we know is these babies are likely to be more fragile, they're more sensitive to stresses and in the transport setting, bu setting buffering against some of this stress through the development of protective transport system would, should be a priority. I guess given that we can't overcome some of the noise, what we would really recommend is helping the baby recognise you're there and role modelling interactions with babies. So talking to babies before you touch them instead of launching straight into an intervention. When you say something to a baby before you touch them, it will give you an idea of how they're going to respond. If they already start to become unstable, they are going to be worse when you put your hands on them. It will give you an idea of what the baby's trying to tell you. And it'll give you a clue of what's going to happen next. And it really role models the importance of verbal communication to babies. We should speak to a baby the same way we would to an adult in an intensive care unit, a child in an intensive care unit. And we know that exposure to language has significant impacts on outcomes in terms of IQ, in terms of school age literacy and reading and writing. We would heavily advocate for minimising separation when possible. How we also realise that sometimes this isn't feasible. And if you can't do this, then scent pads is something that can easily be integrated. Ideally, you give something to the mum that's scented and the baby with the baby scent and vice versa, something to the baby with the mum's scent. And the reason why scent is so important is sleep-wake cycling is influenced by the presence of maternal scent and this may help calm the baby during transport. There is a great video that is available on YouTube. It is a mum with a three-month-old. Mum's gone to the shops and the baby's getting very distressed and dad gives her one of her dirty shirts out of the laundry hamper. It is the best example of why scent works and if you're ever on the fence of why you think you should or shouldn't use scent, this should be your answer. I'd really advocate, please don't worry if the baby's intubated and you think they can't smell anything. At this point, scent may be a psychological intervention where we're saying to families, you are important and something of you that your baby can recognise as you should always be with them. And in the context of retrieval and transfer to another unit, scent is an easy option. Um, increasingly, we're talking about the use of colostrum, particularly in the first three days of life. And if what we'd say to a transport team is if you can't use it during your transfer, take it with you and get it to be used at the local site that you're going to. There was an RCT done in Korea. It looked at less than 28 week gestation infants and it showed a reduced incidence of clinical sepsis decreased pro-inflammatory cytokines and increased level of circulating immune protective factors. This was colostrum giving every three hours over three days. I guess the other thing we'd probably say to consider is safety. It really is the primary consideration in positioning for transport. So we want the baby to be safe during transport. But what we'd say is that from a developmental perspective, we know positioning of preterm and term infants in supine positions on their back they have more frequent startles and shorter sleep-wake cycles. So if it is safe, consider transferring them in a sideline position. They don't have to work so hard against gravity, so their anti-gravity movements and their self-regulation strategies are easy. They're in a flexed fetal tuck position. They cope much, much better. Um, and the only other thing I think we should probably have on our radar is the spinal precautions during um, for less than 29-week 29 29 week gestation infants for the first 48 to 72 hours of life and that is about trying to reduce the incidence of IVH. So maybe some babies will be transferred in that spinal precautions head in midline position. 
but I think this is an area that warrants further research. Mm, so I guess there are two sort of um, <clears throat> conflicting bits of advice there. If, you, if we're going to transfer them in the spinal mm. precautions, that's flat on their back, supine, isn't it? And yeah. side-lying is um, not... And, and what, what do you think of, um, you know, the, our SIDS guidelines all teach us to put babies to sleep on their back? How, how does this um, work with those guidelines? I think it's a real challenge. Um, the SIDS guidelines came about when a cluster of interventions was introduced, so I think it's hard to pull apart what are the most successful interventions in there. It is really important to advocate that we use those. We don't have any other guidance to suggest we shouldn't use those. As a developmental specialist, what I would tell you is if a baby is unsettled in the NICU, I always tell staff to turn the baby on their side. They always cope much better. You can provide better hands-on support. Mm. Would we advocate for this at home? No, we should um, advocate for safe sleeping guidelines, but we should also be aware of the fact that a lot of parents do what they need to do at home, and that may include adjustment of safe sleeping guidelines. I think it will be reviewed and they will look at it within a broader social context moving forward. But then you've got neonatologists like Niels Bergman, who is um, uh, he's based in South Africa, and he advocates for the concept of breast sleeping, which is where babies are designed to sleep on their parents' chest and that's where they should be all the time. So maybe having babies sleep in skin to skin, having units that can actually facilitate this continuous skin to skin contact, like couplet care, which they do beautifully in Sweden and in Canada as well, is something we should be looking for. Mm, I guess it's um, in the NICU and in retrieval, we have a monitored baby so we can apply um, alternative sleeping positions, but we still advocate that it's safest at home to sleep on your back. Absolutely. So if there was one area of research you would like to see us um, pursue in neonatal transport what would that be i think i'd really love to see skin to skin back transfers implemented and researched in australia and in the broader neonatal community it is being done in some countries particularly european countries and the reason why we advocate for it is babies in skin to skin are much better oxygenated they have fewer critical events and they achieve a deeper sleep so this could be a protective intervention or a buffer for transport within their um, neonatal retrieval environment. We know there has been research in this area with publications from Belgium and their paper described back to, back back to hospital transfers for babies that were 1.5 kilos to 6 kilos and for up to one and a half hours on the road. The challenge in Australia may be the length of the retrievals because we're obviously a bit bigger than some of the European countries. There is a product out there available on the market. It is called a Kangafix neonatal restraint system. And I think that should warrant further investigation. This is a great opportunity for a nurse to lead research in the area. Importantly, it has to be co-designed with parents. So you have to include the parent perception of transport in addition to that physiological and safety parameter data because that ensures a family-focused intervention that we're advocating for is evaluated from the family's perspective and actually works for them. Mm. Yeah, I would agree it's a, um, an area worthy of research. I think in Australia, at least, we have there's a huge gap. Um, if a baby's born at home, I think our paramedics currently struggle with how to get them to the hospital safely for review. Um, they often go on the mother's chest unrestrained, so it would be really really great to see um, 
one of our nursing leaders to lead that research. I'd be certainly very happy to support that. Um, yeah, so thanks for that. Good Great. stimulation of our research in transport. So Nadine, to finish off our conversation, I have a bit of a theme running in this podcast and I wanted to know how has gender affected your career, um, if it has it at all, and what do you think we could be doing better in that area? I think as a female in a female-dominated profession, it's possibly less of an issue than some of my colleagues in the medical profession and in science. But I think regardless of your profession, cultural and gender diversity in positions of leadership significantly needs to be addressed in the Australian community to ensure we have a robust community-focused workforce, but also that we have leadership that considers multiple angles. When you look at diversity in Australia at the moment, it is sadly lacking. Hmm. And so you say you're a female in a female-dominated profession. How, how do you think the males in your profession fare? I think they, it depends on them and their, um, and I'd hate to think that I'm speaking on their behalf, I'd just like to say that, but I think it depends on what their career aspirations are. I think sometimes you look around and you think that there's an even spread between males and females and sometimes it seems to be more males than females. I think it's hard for male nurses and midwives though, you know, they're surrounded by women and women can really give it to their male colleagues, particularly female nurses. So, and I mean that in the nicest way, we're always very passionate about what we do, but it can be hard being the minority in a profession and it is such a heavily gender specific profession. Hmm. And given that it's a female gendered profession, um, don't you think the pay needs address? Um, it is difficult for nurses to live and raise a family in Sydney, isn't it? It really is. It's interesting. We did research last year and it looked at developmental care and its application and it was across Australia and part of that was the nurse had to put their suburb that they lived in. It was based on the C for postcodes in Australia and it looks at socio-demographic outcomes. What was really interesting was that nurses all lived in the higher socio-demographic areas and I said to our statistician, I don't think that's actually right. I don't think that it's sensitive enough to capture where most nurses live, we're not in Point Piper, we're not living in mansions. Is it easy to raise a family and um, work? I definitely don't think it is for our nurses who have families and work part-time. And I think we're very grateful for positions in the current health climate, but are we worth more money? Absolutely, and do we reach a threshold? We definitely do. We cannot continue to get more and more money. But I think on the back of increasing our wages we desperately need to look at how nurses are staffed in neonatal units across Australia because we there will be a cost obviously we, if we increase our baseline wage but the savings is the longer term outcomes for these babies within the community so it's ultimately cost saving. Mm, and we might keep our nurses for longer and they take a lot of um, if they leave nursing for higher income jobs they take a lot of corporate knowledge with them which I always find is sad to lose. Absolutely. So thanks, Nadine. You're an inspiration for me to work with. Um, you certainly push us all to make our care for vulnerable newborns better. Thank you so much for the work you do every day to make the lives of children better. And thanks for having a neonatal conversation with me today. Thank you so much, Kath. If you have enjoyed this podcast or have questions, please head to the webpage www.neonatalconversations.com where there are links to the references used in this podcast and where we might be able to continue the discussion. You can also leave feedback or commentary on Facebook, Neonatal Conversations, 
or on Twitter at Neo Conversation. We would really appreciate any feedback you might have. Thanks so much for listening and thank you all for caring for the critically ill newborn.